I'm going to make a quick suggestion. Um, and this is born out of my knowledge and friendship for our teacher, Dr. Lloyd. I took two courses from Dr. Lloyd at Kent State Stark. Uh, after I retired, I, I went, to, went back to college as a senior guest student where you don't pay tuitions and you don't get any credit other than the kind of credits you can work out with your kind professor who can say things like, well, that was pretty good. Uh, Dr. Lloyd is noted for his PowerPoint lectures, and I'm going to suggest we have a whole raft of seats closer to the screen than where most of you are sitting, and you'll be able to see better and extract more good information from the slides if you move up to this uh, great circle or orchestra circle. If we were in a theater, we would call this the orchestra circle. So don't everybody get up at once and move. <laughs> but or not. save me a seat, because I plan to be sitting up here. Um, let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, in gratitude, we gathered this morning. Gratitude on many levels. Five American souls have been restored to us from the Middle East where they've been imprisoned. And we are grateful that they are restored to their family and their community and their country. Be with those five souls, we ask. We're grateful to be gathered here together ourselves. And we're grateful that Dr. Lloyd has returned to us for what I believe is his fourth time with us, often in this calendar portion of the year, right after New Year's. May we learn from him as he presents scripture in an academic manner as we study rhetoric in scripture in the most classic sense of the word rhetoric. Guide us, we ask, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Dr. Lloyd teaches at Kent State Stark and teaches in the area of English and writing and biblical history and rhetoric and not the kind of rhetoric <clears throat> that we might hear on a political debate about this time of the year or from Hillary Clinton's press secretary or from Donald Trump's own lips. That's not the kind of rhetoric that we're going to study. Rhetoric in the classic sense is the way arguments are made and advanced. And Dr. Lloyd is going to edify us on that aspect as it, as it uh, connects with scripture. So, Dr. Lloyd, you're on. <laughs> Thanks. It's nice to be back. I feel like that uh, I just go away for a few weeks and I come back, but it is only just once a year that I'm here. 
Um, but I'm glad to see so many people, so many familiar faces, reconnect. And there are three words up there that are all Greek words. So in a way, it's a little anachronistic because uh, Greek culture didn't identify these concepts until after some parts of the Bible have been written. But being trained in the field that I am, uh, which considers itself as beginning in Greek culture, we tend to use Greek terms. Um, but I don't know about you, but I really like it in life when I learn something that changes everything. Do you know what I mean? Like you just, someone will say something and you look at everything differently because of that, or you'll learn something and everything changes. And I'm hoping that everything you know about these words that you learn as we go through this will change everything about how you see the world. Um, they have for me, so I figure, well, if it works for me, <laughs> it might work for you. So mythos is a word that's very misunderstood. We tend to think that the Greeks believed in myths or the Romans believed in myths and nobody else did. But of course, that shows ignorance of your own self, your own beliefs. Um, so I want to redefine what mythos means. Once we redefine it, then you'll look at the world probably differently. <laughs> Logos is uh, a Greek word that took on a whole lot of meaning. It means word, so there you go. So word means word. But it's become our word for logic, and it's, so it became to mean reasoned words, not just words. But it also took on a meaning that became very important to the Bible, if you know the first lines of First John, I mean of the Gospel of John. Right? In Arcane Halagas. In the beginning was the word Halagas. So um, that reflects a later tradition that originated with a, a Jewish Egyptian teacher who took the idea of the Logos and said that basically this is the force of the creation of the world, that God created the world through Logos, and that Logos is how the world is sustained. And the goal of life is to get in touch with the logos of the world, the reasoning of the world, to be moving with the world rather than against the world. It would be a handy thought for people to apply right now. Are we moving against the world or are we moving with the world? Rhetoric, again, a much misunderstood word. It came to mean, let me just kind of give it the definitions I have set up here. Myth. Let's, if we, let's, let's change the way that we look at the idea of myth. Because if you just look at what their function is, then you can understand what a myth is. A myth is a set of stories providing explanations for natural phenomena, detailed codes of ethical behavior, and even geographical and technical information. Okay, so from this point of view, the Old Testament would be a myth. Now, I'm not saying it's not true, but think about how much baggage we have for the word now because we think myths are untrue and things that people don't believe. True? <laughs> In a minute, that's going to change radically. But if you change it this way, it's a set of stories providing explanations. This became a really handy way for me to think. Because if I refer to the story of Adam and Eve, you don't have to be a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim to understand the story because it's a part of the myth of our society. Am I making any sense? They call it a myth theme. You can make a quick reference to a myth and people fill it in. So if I said, 
wow, when I saw her, I felt like Adam when he saw Eve. Most people would get that. Yes? Whether they believed in the story or not. So it isn't a matter of whether it's true. Some people might think it's true. Some people might not. doesn't matter. It, what matters is the story is a part of our culture. Yes? Okay. And this is actually some... From based on some of the research from Susan Jarrett, a friend of mine, whose one of her books kind of changed the way I look at everything. The Logos is the rational principle behind the whole of creation or the use of rationality to make decisions, logic, dialectic, syllogistic reasoning. Rhetoric, this is a medieval depiction of rhetoric as rhetorica, as a female, which is interesting. Right there, and I wish I had time to go down that road, but I don't. <coughs> Using persuasive or eloquent speech, so first of all, it's, you, we're using rhetoric when we speak eloquently or convincingly. I thank you for bringing up Donald Trump. He speaks convincingly, not eloquently. Uh, training and effective debate, so if you're trained in it, you're called, it's training in rhetoric, or the study of debate persuasion. And actually today, it, it's, uh, you, can, you can look at text rhetorically, which is what we're doing. Looking at them in terms of eloquence, or in terms of convincingness. Okay, now I'm going to tell you a story. <laughs> and it's a story about stories. This could get mind-boggling. Here's the story. Humans once lived in a mythical world, and you see this all through our culture, don't you? You see it now in a, in a lot of this uh, Lord of the Rings kind of thing. We once lived in this world with fairies and elves, and they all went away. But it, we tend to think that's the mythology, but let's look a little more carefully. Humans once lived in a mythical world, which was replaced by a rational world. This change began in the time of Plato, Arist uh, Socrates, and Aristotle, but found fullest form in the age of enlightenment and the subsequent age of science and technology. Now remember, this is a story. Are you with me? There's truth in it, but it's not the whole truth. It's a story that puts some facts together. This is referred to the historical movement from mythos to logos. There's a German poster of it. Vom mythos zum logos. Pre and then one of the other assumptions is the preliterate society functioned through a paratactic narratives which dictated perceptions and behaviors through trance-like performances of ancient poets who are conveyors of culture, behavior, political perspectives. Knowing that makes a big difference how you see the ancient prophets, how you see Homer, in, in the writing of the Iliad, that these were cultures that were kind of on the crux of oral and written culture. And culture was transmitted through the telling of stories. Yeah? So while we gather and watch television or play on computers, what did they do? They sat around fires and they listened to. But these weren't stories. They were myths. And miss, again, that doesn't mean they're false. That means this is a story that I'm telling you in order to explain the world and how you function in it. Yes? So these stories were told to explain our function in the world. And, of course, you can see the irony that this is a story we tell ourselves to explain the world. <laughs> yes? So the modern mythos is we don't live in a mythos. All right, so there we go. The interpretation itself is a mythos. 
By the way, Mythos is also a Greek beer, and it's quite tasty. <laughs> so later on, you can celebrate <laughs> this, uh, this series by having a Mythos beer. All right, assumptions about the mythic world. Individual behavior. All right, so this is what they assume about this transition from Mythos to Logos. Individual behavior is dictated by subconscious adherence to elements of narrative stories surrounding the individual. Okay, so I didn't really act on my own. I thought about how Abraham acts, and I would act like that. You just see what I'm saying? These people in these mythic stories become ways to live your life. And it's interesting because this is often the way we see it, isn't it? Like, you don't want to be Jacob part one. You want to be Jacob part two. Yes? Do you want to be the one who contends with God <laughs> and steals your birthright? Or do you want to be Israel? Yes? But a lot of us, I think, who have a, a, a background of being a bit of a rebel, like I was when I was younger, I really identify with Jacob. Yes? I was the one who left, stole my birthright, whatever. I felt I identified with that. But then I had also identified with where I wanted to go, which was where Jacob went to live through his trials and tribulations and understand himself. And everybody latches on to characters in these mythic stories that way. They believed about this mythic world that all decisions were communal in the sense that the voice of the narrative comes the internal voice in the individual. So the story becomes part of the way you talk to yourself. Again, we tend to think that's what people in the past did. I don't know if that really went away. Are there people now that are walking around in a Harry Potter mythium? I think so. I think there are people living their lives through that narrative. There are people living in the Star Trek one, aren't there? In the Star Wars one. Interactions with the world and other communities cause shifts in the narrative story and they're absorbed into it. So you're thinking, well, how does it change? It changes because the world changes, our interactions with the world change, so the story changes. All right. The assumption is that no one can think outside the myth themes of their society. Now, to some extent, are these things all true? Of course. But are they limited? Yes. If you, if, if you ever want to understand what it is to be American, go overseas. Is it true? Everybody I talked to, they said, I had no idea what it meant to be an American until I'm sitting in Paris. <laughs> and you're like, wait. James Baldwin, it was very interesting. He wanted to move away from the racism that he found in America. He moved to France. And he said, that's when I became fond of being an American. That's when I really understood who I was. So it's kind of hard to see outside of your, the stories of your society unless you go live in a different one. All right. So part of this assumption is that the, this change happens because of literacy. It, it changes because we learn to write. So, literacy begins abstract thinking. That leads to rational thought. Rational thought makes us question assumptions. In other words, we start to question the myth themes and seek empirical evidence for beliefs. So you see that in Aristotle, especially in Aristotle. Like, we're not going to just accept the stories. We need proof. Without rationality, there would be no rhetoric. Because to debate something, it has to be debatable. And without rationality and rhetoric, democracy would not have emerged. So these are all assumptions that we make. I don't think they're complete. They're partially true, 
partially not true in the sense that what Susan Jarrett says. If you actually look at the ancient cultures, you can see rational thought in the mythic world and you can see mythic elements in the rational world. So how does Aristotle make a lot of his points? By referring to the myths of his society. How does Aristotle? So they rely on myths to make their arguments, their rational arguments. At the same time, you can see rational arguments taking place in the Iliad. So it's more complicated. So what I'm trying to say is this. Uh, that thing that says down there. Mythos, logos, and rhetoric work together. There's always mythos, there's always logos, and there's always rhetoric, and they're always working together. Okay, so from amended view, again, this changed the way I was looking at things. Murray Edelman wrote an excellent article saying that political language can evoke a set of mythic beliefs in subtle and powerful ways. So, getting back to politics, once you begin to see this, you begin to think, you begin to realize, wait a second, Republicans have, like, not all Republicans, but many Republicans, you can kind of slate them out, have a story of the world. And they speak within that story. Democrats have a different story. So you begin to see the problem isn't between Republicans and Democrats, it's that they have different stories, explanatory stories of how the world works. See what I'm saying? It already is starting to happen, isn't it? You're like, huh. So you stop listening to individual things that people are saying, and you start hearing their story. What story do you have to believe to say that? It's an interesting thing to ask. Once we see that the world is still all inside of mythemes, then you begin to look and see where are these, these myths, the mythos. Another way it's part of our society is that America tells itself a story about itself, does it not? We just went through Thanksgiving. America tells itself this story. If you go back and you look at the actual first Thanksgiving not a lot of it is similar to what actually we celebrate. And we didn't celebrate it for a few hundred years. So it was a story purposefully made up about the beginnings of our society. And there are many of these. The white picket fence story, you'll succeed if you really work hard story. Those are all the stories of America, yes? What did I hear the one the other day? Something about that's what makes us the envy of the world. I like That's a story we like to tell ourselves. We're the envy of the world. I don't know if everybody in the world really envies us, but we like to think we are. Yes, it's the story we tell ourselves. I like this story, who doesn't? <laughs> Daniel Coleman wrote a great article about how people live their lives through stories. He said, so you live your stories that people tell about your own life. He, what he does is this really interesting thing. He interviews people for two hours and has them tell the story of their life. And he says, I can always identify a mythic story. Like I said, Jacob could be one of them. He uses the Greek gods as his model. But you, I think you could put anybody there. Is this an Abraham person? Is this a um, Joshua kind of person? Do you see what I'm saying? So that story becomes an identifying way of how you see your life. 
All right. So what I'm going to do in the series is what Jarrett does in terms of rereading the past, in terms of mythos and logos. <coughs> I'm going to try to read text through all three of these lenses and just see what happens. So these, through these kinds of reconstructions, we can come to understand better how the worldview mythos, uh, habits of persuasion, and eloquence, rhetoric, and methods of reasoning interact in a given scene or period. The assumption is this. Nobody comes from nowhere, right? If I, uh, I've learned this a lot um, through going overseas as well. I present at European conferences. A lot of times Americans will present in such a way that the Europeans have no idea what they're talking about because they use a lot of references that are true in America but not true in Europe. For instance, we have composition courses in America, right, where we're taught how to write in college, college writing one, college writing two. I teach those courses. They don't have those in Europe. But I'll see American speakers, well, when we're teaching college writing one, and I'm like, they don't do that here. It would be helpful to actually do a little research <laughs> and understand. So everybody has their own context. Nothing comes from nowhere. And so things that make sense in one context don't make any sense in another. If someone's telling themselves and living a different story than you, then your things that make sense in your story are not going to make sense to them. Yes? Speaking of Donald Trump, we're going to get to a quote from him in a minute. But he says in one of his things, he goes, nobody understands this. And I just go like, nobody who shares your story understands this. But a lot of people understand it. They just don't share your story. You read the world through this little story of yours, and it's fine. Everybody has their story. But at the same time, you can't say that that's my story. And you can't rely on that being my story. But one of the tricks of rhetoric is to make other people's stories look stupid. Yes? Like, how could you believe that? <laughs> I have a friend of mine who's always saying that. Well, how could anyone believe that? And I'm like, if they have the right story, they'll believe that. Okay, so here's what I'm trying to say in a visual. Rhetoric usually involves three elements, the speaker, the audience, the situation. I speak you're the audience, and there's a situation. There's a time and a space, January 2016. United States, Presbyterian Church, etc. So my, re my methods of reasoning are chosen based on that. Yes, the situation, audience, it should be. There are people who do not speak to their audience, and you know what happens to them. But the thing that I want to add, and the thing that I'm trying to bring across here is we cannot speak without these stories. They're always there. And knowing what stories someone believes makes a huge difference into how they understand what you're saying and how you understand what they're saying. And I think a lot of times everything is based on that. If you think about your friendships and marriages or whatever, they're based in a common mythos, usually. If you have a different mythos, you've really got a problem in a relationship, haven't you? Because you can't say something like, well, you know, that so-and-so, uh, he's a real chump. You don't want the other person going, no, I don't think so at all. <laughs> That's fine for a colleague, not too great sometimes for just hanging out. Okay, so cultural mythos 
affect, and I would, I should, probably should have put determine all aspects of that rhetorical triangle. All right. You may be asking yourself, <laughs> okay, so if I have a certain story of the world, and they've done studies on this, and it's pretty interesting. What does it take to get me out of my story? Does it take a contradiction? I've made that assumption before with my mother. I'll show a contradiction in something that she believes. Mom was against Obama health care, but my mom lives on Social Security. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> so I bring up the contradiction. I'm like, so it's okay for you as an old person to get money from the government, but you don't want anybody else to. And she immediately recognized, well, that is kind of a contradiction. But she didn't change, because she didn't change her story. Am I making any sense? I kind of thought, well, now that she's seen the contradiction, maybe, no, nothing changed. The yes. So this is what we do. This is called habit of mind. If I have a story, one of the reasons that, this, that you would think contradictions would cause a story to collapse, eventually a lot of contradiction will. A, you know, a story, we don't believe in the Greek gods anymore. It collapsed. But other things still are around. For most people, belief in fairies collapsed, but it's still around. All right, so the myths allow people to function within their social order but cannot erase the unwelcome contradiction that continues to plague them. And they must be continually resolved by renewed evocations of myth through language and actions. The availability in the culture of the opposing myth permits the individual to reconcile contradictions and live with ambivalence. Oh, so what happens is if there's a failure in my story, I just steal from your story. Just a little while... So I feel sane, and then I'm okay. So we'll find that there are competing and contradictory myths in our society, which you would think would cause the society to collapse, but that just means you've got available mythemes to grab if yours starts to fail. Wow, did I pay you some money before? Because <laughs> it's coming. All right, I'll get, uh, here's a simple one. In one culture of mythos, poverty is an individual problem, right? People are lazy or blah, blah, blah. And while to another, it's a systemic problem. Well, you know, the problem is we have all these crummy programs and we have, a we have an imbalanced you know, capitalist system, blah, blah, blah. Okay, both of those are the stories, but neither one leads to any solutions. Yes, not by itself. You can change the system and not change the problem. You can change the problem, not the system. It has to be both. But because we have two different stories, a lot of times nothing happens. Are you with me? That's a simple example. Um, Congress is in this right now. There, there are at least three different stories going on. There's like uh, two stories in Republican and one in maybe, I don't know, maybe two in Democrat. But it seems like there's only pretty much one in Democrat and two in Republican. Right now, stories they're telling themselves. But you can see how this all spills out. There, you know, the Democratic side pretty much has the story that the, the world is global warming and it's human caused, and the Republican side is like, well, there may be global warming, but it's not human caused. Different story, so different conclusions. And nobody seems to go like, well, what are the facts? Well, not nobody, but you tend to believe the story over the facts. 
Okay, so they function a little bit like bumper stickers. I put this one, if going to church makes you a Christian, does going to the garage make you a car? <laughs> okay. And I think we suffer right now from bumper sticker politics. People know, they don't, they, they unconsciously inhabit a story, make a reference to that story, and everyone goes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But nobody really thinks about what the heck anybody just said. Am I making any sense? It's just like, well, what you said makes sense in my story, so therefore, I vote for you. Not a lot of thinking going on in that kind of situation. All right, so here we go. Here's an example from Donald Trump. First of all, it's interesting to see what is his story. Story in this particular reference is everybody admits worldwide Muslims were going absolutely wild. Okay, first of all, <laughs> I don't, I don't agree with that story. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't think all Muslims are going wild. I teach Muslim students. I have them in my classes. They're not going wild. There are a lot of Muslims not going wild. But that's the story he tells himself. So, and I think it's a story that a lot of people agree with, so therefore it makes sense, and therefore he can say something like this. We have a president that won't even mention the term or the name. I don't know what the, his problem is. Nobody understands it. He won't mention radical Islamic terrorism. He won't mention it. It could be from a different planet as far as he's concerned. And you're not going to solve the problem unless you're willing to talk about what the problem is. I'm willing to talk about what the problem is. Wow. So do you see his story? His story is problem, solution, problem, solution, problem, solution. He thinks like a CEO. Yes, we have a problem. What are we going to do? Solve it. Just like a friend of mine's uh, dad said, said, well, most problems you can solve are throwing money at it. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's a story you tell yourself. And I'm sure there's going to be some problems in his life he's going to be like, I can't throw enough money at this. Hmm. Something's wrong with my story. Probably not. It's interesting, though, because the problem-solution uh, narrative has recently been inhabited by Trump. He didn't actually use that for a while. He's, now he's stuck in it. I heard him this morning. He's like, oh, that's the problem. <laughs> and like, oh, he loves this problem-solution thing. He's, he's on his story. Interestingly enough, Barack Obama, he refused to describe the Islamic State as, and Al-Qaeda as groups fueled by radical Islam because the term grants them a religious legitimacy they don't deserve. They are not religious leaders, they are terrorists, Obama said during remarks at White House event, countering violent extremism. We are not at war with Islam, we are at war with people who perverted Islam. It's interesting that he is telling the story of war, isn't it? Often in the past, it's been Republicans who've been telling the, the war story, and Democrats resisting. But you can see that both of them are reaching across to the other story because it works in this context. So the war narrative works better for Obama in this context because he feels like he's going to reach that base that Trump is trying to reach. Trump uses the problem-solving one, trying to reach across and grab the base from the other side because that's going to be a narrative that a lot of Democrats might like. Are you with me? I don't even think they think about this. I don't think he's sitting around going, should I frame it problem solution? I think he's just following the story. That's what we do. I have no idea what I just said. 
I don't think that they're doing it consciously, necessarily. Although I, pro I do think probably there's somebody in Obama's office that said, you gotta say something about war. You gotta call it war. If you're not gonna call them this, then you're gonna have to call it war. You see what I'm saying? Because you've gotta give some people some slack. Yeah. There you go. Yes, and thank you for not actually getting into the politics of this, but rather the point, which is good. I, I don't want to stay in the point, because I didn't really want, I didn't want to bring up we, yeah, <laughs> not the point. The point is, is anyone outside of story, even me, even anybody? I think if you are aware, though, that how much story is there, it's like the air that we breathe, it's everything, it surrounds us, that once you realize that they're there, and those things, that the press is manufacturing stories, people are manufacturing stories about themselves that may not match the story they actually live, it gets complicated, doesn't it? Like, I don't know what story Trump really tells himself before he goes to bed about who he is. It's a little scary to think about. I, for me, because he just seems to be so self-centered. But see, that's my story, interpreting through that. You know what I'm saying? And it, so it's complicated. It, I can't see him outside of his story or my story unless I realize we're both telling a story. Yep. So what I want to do is look at some examples actually from the Bible. Yeah. That's a fantastic question. What about the intent of the story? No, the story is just to convince you to be persuaded to do something, but the something is the intent, and you don't know what that is because the story doesn't convey it. Wow. You guys are getting deep on me in the first week. This is fantastic. <laughs> yes. Nobody is telling us the story. They're living it, speaking it, creating it. So we don't have any idea what that attention of the story might be. Yeah? Sometimes we do go beyond what the story is and think what we think the intent is. Right. And this is why some questions come up as to responsibility. If, uh, if someone tells a story and it leads someone to violence, say, okay, which happened, uh, the story Black Lives Matter, right? Again, like a good example because it became a bumper sticker and it's a particular kind of perspective, <coughs> but then it seemed to have led to violence in some quarters, right? So then it's like a story that went out of hand, which causes people who tell one kind of story to go back and go, see? Your story is evil. Or people who believe in that story to go, well, that's not our intent. We didn't mean to create violence. We meant to lessen it, address it, speak to it, stop it. 
But you don't know how your story is going to spin out. I have to be careful to the teacher. Sometimes I'll say things in class, and I'm like, I don't know how they're going to spin this out. I don't know what part of their story they're going to take this to, and it might not be anywhere I would like them to go. I don't know what you guys are going to do, <laughs> what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right, so Edelman says this, and this is my only comment on this, because I, I at least think we ought to think about what is the motivation of this story. And I think we ought to think about, is this story based in fear? Yeah, I tend to bristle at anything that's intentionally trying to make me afraid. Because I don't think people who are afraid solve things. I think they go too far, usually. If I'm afraid, I'm going to do something that's out of character. True? I, I'm not thinking about it. If someone scares me, I might do something really out of character. But if, if I'm thinking about it, logos, rationally. Okay, so what he says is this. We are eager to believe that the government will ward off evils and threats, but our eagerness to believe it makes us susceptible to political language that intensifies and eases anxiety, at least as powerfully as the language of religion. Okay. Wow, that just takes everything full circle, though, doesn't it? That these stories, in some ways, are, are like a religion that people will believe them and have faith in them, base their lives in them. But then they can be manipulated to fear because of them. This is why I'm leery of all this hell in a handbasket kind of stuff, especially since I majored in history. If you read at any point in time in history, there's somebody writing about the youth and how they're ruining the world, and there's somebody writing about how it used to be better, but now it's crap. Now, sometimes when I, I love old movies, and sometimes when I'm watching old movies, I'm like, no, it was better. <laughs> <laughs> In some ways, we have a little more evidence now that at least our society was perhaps a little more, uh, what do you call it, uh, genteel, considerate. I do think we're losing some of that now. But it, does that mean the world's going to end? No, it's only going to end if we, you know, blow the place up, but it's not going to end. That's just my story. All right, so you're probably thinking, well, is he ever going to talk about the Bible? Of course. This is an example from Genesis of what I'm talking about. If you heard me talk before, you know that uh, there's something called, it just went out of my brain, the documentary hypothesis which is the belief that the Bible was written over time by uh, unifying sources from different places and making them all into one text. And actually next week, I'm going to talk about how that happened. And it, I, it's, it's pretty amazing. But this week, let me just say, there was a J source, and, they, and these refer to God as Yahweh, and they are from... Judah, so it's easy to remember J, Judah, even though neither one of those were actually pronounced with a J. <laughs> it's Judah and Jehovah. Okay, but so there are those documents, and they are some of the oldest, and they represent the interest of the southern kingdom, which is where uh, Solomon and David are from, and it's where Jerusalem is. The Elohim is the E source. Uh, God is called Elohim, or El, and these are northern sources. They're from 
um, the part of, well, actually Israel, the country of Israel. The other part was called Judah, the southern kingdom. And so there are stories that protect the interests of the northerners. They use a generic word for God, El, whereas the other ones use Yahweh, the more specific word. And as you can see, they become combined by editors over time. And basically these editors are D and P. Uh, the editors, first editors were uh, Deuteronomus. It's right there in front of you. Deuteronomy means the second book of the law. And you can't help but think, why do we have a second book? We already have Exodus. Well, that's why, because the Deuteronomist came along later and they amended the law. They weren't meant to be the last book of the Pentateuch. They were supposed to be the first book of the history. Yes? So if you read it that way, it makes a whole lot more sense <coughs> what they were trying to do. But it was a revision. And then there was a priestly revision that kind of pulled everything together. The priestly revision focused on specifying things like what are supposed to, what's supposed to be done on holidays, who's in charge of what, what Aaron's sons and the, and the role of, of Aaron's sons and the Levites, all the specific things, uh, the things about the jewels that you wear as the priest, all those things were edited in. It's not to say that they weren't oral traditions all along, but as each one of these edited over time, we get the Bible that we have now. Okay, so some of the evidence for what I'm talking about is Genesis 1 uses Elohim, which translates, it's literally plural for God, the gods. And they translate it, try to, uh, English translators try to be faithful to that by saying this, then God said, let us make mankind, so let Elohim make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. This is the sixth day of the day story of creation. Yes? So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them both. So the idea that God is plural here is trying to express that God is both male and female and that, or neither male or female, but that both are the image of God. Yes? This is a later story provided by the e-sources, the northern sources. The earlier story provided by the, the southern sources is the one that we're probably all familiar with. It uses the name Yahweh. This is the account. And it's interesting because you're reading along and then it goes, this is the account, meaning not that other one, this one is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created and when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found, so the Lord God, Lord God is Yahweh, I am. Officially in Judaism, you would not even put that out. You put like L-RD. He was sleeping. He took one of the, uh, as he was sleeping, took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place of flesh. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And that's not to say that you can't reconcile these stories, and it has been historically reconciled, but from the documentary hypothesis point of view, they're two different stories, and the writers left them together for that reason, that one's not an adequate explanation, the other wasn't an adequate explanation, they had different intentions, they had different explanatory power, 
One explains that male and female are equal. One explains that male was first and then there was a fall. Both stories led to repercussions. If we'd have had just one and not the other, I don't know how things would have been different. It's interesting to think about. But they kept them both, and I think they kept them for that reason. We don't want to say that their traditions, it, because if you think about what they're trying to do, they're trying to create a unified country when they're putting the Bible together. So you have to take the traditions of the South, the traditions of the North, put them side by side, let them sit there. No decisions made, and maybe put a little narration between them. Okay, now I want to think about the mythos of Abraham's world. If you can look at Abraham, he was born over here in Ur. They call it Ur of the Chaldees, but it's in Sumeria, the ancient Sumeria. It's later on called Babylon, but it's not at the time of he lived there. That we always want to throw that in. But you can see he crossed up into Haran, which would be up in Syria, down through Damascus, Canaan, what we would call today Lebanon, Jordan, uh, Israel, and then uh, down below, he went all the way to Egypt. So what I want to do the rest of the time here with Abraham is look and see in what ways was Abraham's rhetoric influenced by his mythos, by the world that he lived in. So how does he, and I particularly was interested, how does he argue with God? That's a tough one, isn't it? <laughs> I can argue with Jim, but am I going to argue the same way with Jim as with God is a different question. So there are going to be elements of Sumerian, Canaanite, Egyptian mythos in the context of his life. One of the strongest mythos of the Old Testament is that it's going to be the, a written culture. Sumerians were the first to develop writing. Who were the second? The Egyptians. So we have a culture above and a culture below, both centered on language, writing. It doesn't take long before Israel picks up on this and becomes a written culture. Think how significant that is just to the beginnings of the Bible. They didn't have to write it down, but they were surrounded by cultures. And uh, it's interesting, the Sumerian culture wrote everything down. We still have thousands and thousands of tablets untranslated from their culture. Thousands. And the reason that it's so slow is because they pick them up and go, oh wow, this is a grocery list. This is the guy's letter to his wife. This is rude. This is like, you know, erotic literature. This, and so they wrote everything. They were obsessed with writing. And it's interesting. So were the Egyptians. And you end up with a culture in between obsessed with writing. All right, so the mythos of the power of writings embedded in biblical culture from the very beginning. And Jews historically have been the, some of the most literate people on the planet. Now, not so in the past, but at least from the time of the collapse of Jerusalem on, that's been true. All right, so who was El? It was a general name for God, but it's adopted, like I said, in the northern text as a name for God. El, the Canaanite deity, uh, Elohim of Israel, Elohim Israel, most prose occurs with an adjunct, Elion, El Elion, uh, the Most High God, El Shaddai, God Almighty, El Hai, the Living God, very commonly plural, Elohim. In Hebrew poetry, 
it's most, mostly just L, so it'd be L throughout uh, many of the Psalms and in Job. It's a generic name for God and also used in the Old Testament for heathen deities. So in, in a lot of senses, El was just like we used the word God. So you could have a pagan God or you could have the most high God. So Abraham argues with God. When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? You can always tell an, uh, an older um, J account because uh, God talks, and he hangs around, and he's very uh, much like a human being. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations of earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and household after him to keep the way of the Lord and doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. That's a story. You see what I'm saying? Abraham's whole identity is this story. And the reason that God speaks to him is because he's the beginning of the story. So, I also want to look at some context. In Sumer, they had a practice of debate called Adamin. A verbal challenge between two contenders who boast of the qualities and prerogatives, denigrate and vilify prerogatives of the adversary and try to gain victory. It's a series of arguments and rebuttals. It reads three or more rounds. It's interesting how many rounds Abraham goes through. Typically, the palm goes to the party that at the outset might have appeared the weaker, as if in recognition of the persuasiveness of the argument. We'll see who gets the palm, who wins. Okay, another characteristic of Sumerian private letters, interestingly enough, so public argument, but also private argument between friends. Characteristics of Sumerian private arguments is irony, rhetorical questions, veiled threats, <laughs> unfinished sentences, and imprecations. See if this doesn't change what you hear when you hear Abraham talk. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. There's a nerve right there. Then Abraham approached him and said, it's interesting because they're referring to the angel of the Lord as the Lord, so it's straight through Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Is that a rhetorical question? Is it an imprecation? Let's see. Yeah, what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? And I love this. Far be it from you to do such a thing. That's an interesting rhetoric, isn't it? I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I'm just going to say, that doesn't sound like you. Implication is like a statement that makes uh, a, an implication uh, that is negative. Like if you do this, he's stating the opposite, opposite, isn't it? He says, far be it from you to do this, but he's saying, if you do this, this is not you. Yes? We use these kind of arguments all the time. You just say to somebody, that just doesn't seem like something you would do. Now, how does he end it? The biggest implication of all, a rhetorical question. Will not the judge of all the world do right? 
In other words, if you don't do right, what are we going to do? Yes, do you see the element of story there? You're the, the main character in all of our stories. <laughs> and if you don't set the example, we're lost. It's a very clever, deeply rhetorical way to argue that's based in the way people argued Canaan, Sumer. Interesting. So, the Lord said 50, and you know how the story goes. Did they go through everything all the way down to 10? All right, so in Sumer, the role of Sumerian kings to disseminate codes of law, codes that are today considered the world's oldest uh, surviving legal documents. The codes were written by the king in the tone of the constitution, proclaiming his duty to enact the godly will. Abraham here is also saying, you're a king, you're the king of the world, and the king has to keep his duty. And this is how you speak to a king. If a king is out of line, you don't go up and go, you're out of line, king. What do you do? You say, do you really want to do this? Have you thought about what this means? Yes? You're not really attacking him, are you? But you're making it so that there's one decision, isn't there? Could God do anything else at this point? No. And not be God. So he goes all the way down. I want to try to get to a second example. Moses argues with God. What we forget, and I wanted to bring up, is the people of Israel, the, the first thing they do is they build a golden calf, right? And they say, this is the God that led us out. And, and modern people are just like, what in the world? Aaron's part of it. And like, what's happening? They just came from Egypt. Yes? What's one of the biggest symbols of a god in Egypt? This one. The sacred bull. Interesting, again, if you look at a later text from 1 Kings, when the country divides after Solomon dies, confusingly, Rehoboam and Jeroboam are the two <coughs> contenders for it to be the king of the whole country. Rehoboam Whereupon the king, uh, Jeroboam, took counsel and made two cows of gold and said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold, thy gods, O Israel, brought thee up of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. The north made a political move to make the worship centers in the north so the people didn't have to go to the south. And that's pure economics, isn't it? You know how people spend all your money in Jerusalem? So he put in temples in the north. But when he went to do it, what did he put? And it seems to be almost without question. Of course this is the symbol of God, the golden calf. So this is not an idea that just went away on that day. It's supposed to be a symbol of Da, and you can see he was also symbols in other things. And I have a whole bunch of stuff. In fact, our first letter of our alphabet is from the ancient name El. Uh, it was uh, this, the horns of a bull, and then it flipped and became A. Aleph. Okay, so let me try to finish real quick. 
So the Lord is mad, and he says, I have seen these people. They're a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone. My anger will burn against them, and I will destroy them, and I'll make you a great nation. He's going to start the story again. He's going to reboot. And now who's going to be Abraham? Moses. So there was Noah. He keeps starting over. It's like, okay. But what does Moses do? He argues with God. Okay, now one other concept. In Egypt, they believed that the world was set up on what, similar to what I said Logos was, that Ma'at, the world was run by Ma'at. So the way you argue to a king is to argue exactly as Abraham did. Will not the judge of all the world do right? So this is an Egyptian tradition as well. We forget that Moses' name is an Egyptian name. You've probably heard Tutmos, famous king. So he's very much, he's educated as an Egyptian. He grows up as an Egyptian, and he uses an Egyptian approach to argument. Okay, because we're running out of time, I'm going to say he, he brings these three arguments. Why should you anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt? Why, the Egyptians will say, you took them out and you killed them. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And then his last argument, you swore by your own self. Those are powerful arguments. But notice that the argument, one, those, your people saved, why is your anger burn against the people whom you brought out of Egypt by the powerful might of hand? That can have two meanings. Why did you save them to destroy them? Or the meaning I think that he means. Why are you so angry with them when they had good intentions and they didn't know any better? Where have they been living? Their whole lives. This is the only reality they know. So, what do you build? A golden calf. It's part of the mythos, and if you understand that, it's part of the reason that, that Moses is arguing. He's basically saying, they're children, they don't know any better. I was out in the wilderness. I had the experience of the bush. They haven't had that. We haven't been to the mountain. They haven't seen what I've seen. Yes? So, of course, they're going to go to the next available mythos. And he saves the country by that. So what I'm trying to say this week, the Hebrew Bible took shape within the context of the surrounding mythos, and it creates its own mythos response that still reflects those surroundings. So you see the same kind of prayer structures in different Middle Eastern cultures. You see the same kind of argumentative structures, etc. The Hebrew religion is based on an emerging repeated narrative a hallmark of the transmission of the cultural mythos is based on the narrative that you hear over and over. Abraham, Isaac, yes? We'll see what happens to that next week. Cultures both north and south invented and refined forms of writing, which only in biblical culture led to a hostility towards the image. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. All right. The Hebrew name for God and associations with the term reflect the surrounding mythos. Hebrew practices and logic and rhetoric conform to models of the surrounding cultures, Canaan, Syria, Sumer, and Egypt. And new and fruitful dimensions emerge when we consider biblical texts in light of mythos, logos, and rhetoric. There we go. I'll try to get my timing better next time. Do we, we have time for yeah, some questions? That clock is probably a few minutes Good. in this room 
said that the overall overarching aspect of the Old Testament is that everything needs to be read through the lens of pointing to Christ. And we have these figures in the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, Boaz, who serve as redeemers in some sense of their life and their actions. So is that redemption mythos or cultural aspect present, and does it inform some of this writing as well? When Moses is arguing with God or Abraham is arguing with God, is that the human trying to make sure God stays true to the redemptive quality that's coming? Or is it the opposite, that God is making sure that Abraham can fulfill his role as the redeemer? That's a darn good question. I have two answers, and they're contradictory. Because <laughs> I just told you why. There are two stories. There's the Christian story of the Old Testament. So the answer would be yes. And there's the Jewish story of the Old Testament that a lot of times we forget. There's a different story. In fact, the books are in a different order in the Jewish collection. The Jewish collection <coughs> ends with what we call the, the writings. And ours ends with the prophets. So we tend to see... Christians look through back through the Bible and they say, well, the prophets are this is the last thing. And that shows that the Christ is coming. But the Jews organized it differently for, for, I think, different purposes. And I think you always have to ask, well, what does this mean to the people in that story? To me, that's one of the richest things you can ask. What's the story going on at this time? And that is that the story changes. So that's not to say that the Christians are just finding stuff that wasn't there. I do think that it's there, but it's because there's a different story here, it changes what stands out. And I always like to ask that question, well, then what did you see? What? Because a lot of times in our culture, we don't even think about that. When you take some of the Psalms that David wrote as a, as a Jewish king, it's hard to read those Psalms and not look at the prophetic nature of him writing and thinking about the redemption that is to come about thousand years later. It's hard as a Christian not yes. to read it. Yes, in the Jewish story, it's the redemption of the Jews. And they're the son of God, the collectively. So what is meant singularly by the Christian traditions that Jesus is singularly the son of God, they would say we are sons of God, and this is the story of our redemption. Yeah. And that's sort of the same thing you're saying about the Old Testament. The, the, the Jewish story is there. But we look, the, the Christian story goes beyond that. Yeah, it's, it's a different way to read the same text. Just like Islam is a different way to read the text. So we don't often ask that, at least we, I'm speaking we way too generally, because of course Muslims look at the Bible the way Muslims look at the Bible. But I think too often, my students who come in the class, they don't ask those kind of questions. Like, this was a Jewish book, what did it mean to the Jews? 
or this is a book that has been adopted also by Islam. How do they see this passage? And of course, it's a different reading. If you're, if you're Muslim, the story of Abraham is a different story. And it's the first son that matters, right? The first son, Ishmael, not Isaac. <laughs> so different things happen when you have a different story. Does that make sense? And actually, next week I'm going to talk about how the story gets put together over time so that it covers the northern version, southern version, and other versions as they come along. How do we pull this all into one book? That's what I want to talk about. What was their story to pull it all together? And it's interesting because their story does lay the groundwork for Judaism being a world religion, which is pretty cool. If, if they'd have left all those different pieces, we might have just had some traditions, you know, we'd have different kinds of Jewish people, we'd have all kinds of different traditions, who knows? But they pull it together in such a way. There we go. Have fun out there. Listen for stories. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs>